Blog Talk Radio. And I Hello, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to Help for HD Live. Help for HD Live is made possible by Help for HD International, and we would like to thank our sponsors, Teva Pharmaceuticals and the Griffin Foundation, for making this show possible. I am your host, Katie Jackson. I have been gone for um, a couple months, and I am really excited to be back on the show um, and back to work after uh, losing Mike. Um, I know that it's kind of that that news has spread around um, that Mike passed away on August 25th, um, but our family is doing as well as we could, could be expected, and um, I'm really glad that um, I'm able to be back at work and continue the fight uh, for my children, of course, and of course for um, that's what Mike would have wanted me to do. So leading into the show, I'm really excited about this show today. Today, our guest is Dr. Doreen Marshall with the American Foundation of Suicide Prevention. As a psychologist with experience that spans clinical, educational, and professional settings, Dr. Marshall has been engaged in local and national suicide (coughs) prevention and post-prevention work for more than 15 years. Since joining AFSP in 2014, Dr. Marshall has expanded SF, I mean, sorry, AFSP's menu of programs and improved programs delivery. I'm sorry, I'm, I'm like having an allergy attack. My throat is like, I don't know, there's, I'm allergic to something in here. Um, so she has uh, expanded the menu of programs and improved program delivery uh, through AFSP's nationwide network of chapters. Dr. Marshall oversees AFSP's prevention and education and loss and healing programs, which include community-based suicide prevention training, clinical training, AFSP's healing um, conversation program, and survivors of suicide and loss, and programming for International Survivors of Suicide Loss Day. Dr. Marshall works uh, to foster partnerships with mental health organizations such as the National Council of Behavior Health to train people across the country in mental health and first aid, and oversees the development of new programs, including uh, clinician training, community training, um, and uh, kindergarten through 12th grade educator training. She is also past chair for the Suicide Prevention Coalition of Georgia, and previously served as the associate, associate, associate director of the Link Counseling Center of Suicide Prevention and aftercare programs in Atlanta. She has served as, um, as a consultant for both national and state suicide preventions and post-prevention initiatives, which includes providing suicide prevention training 
for the Division of Behavioral Health and Development Disabilities and serving on a task force of the National Action Alliance for Suicide Prevention. My goodness. So if we want an expert on our show, we got it. Um, thank you so much, Dorian, for, uh, uh, Dr. Marshall, for coming on the show with us today. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so let's start. Um, what made you focus your career on those battling with mental health? Well, that's a great question. I, um, you know, the area of uh, suicide prevention within mental health um, is an area that, that is growing and, and really the there's been more attention to it probably in the last 10 years than there has been in the last 30. Um, but I started my career um, as a graduate student in psychology. And uh, during the time I was in my graduate training, I lost someone very close to me to suicide. And that um, really kind of focused my career because I, I wanted to both understand my own loss but also I, I was surprised at the time, and this goes back over 20 years, I was surprised to learn how little we knew about suicide and, and really how little we knew then about what to do about it. And one of the things that AFSP does is we fund research. We're the largest private funder of suicide prevention research. And because of that, we've really learned more in the last 10 years than, than we've known any time before that about suicide and, and kind of what contributes to it. It's so exciting that we're in this, like, new generation for so many different reasons, but one, for pushing aside these stigmas and this, and really focusing on research on how, this is, a, I mean, it's, you, bear, you rarely hear about research and suicide. Well, we, you know, I don't, so I feel so so happy that this research is actually happening and it's being addressed. Our mental health um, uh, problems in the United States are so under-addressed. Um, uh, yeah. So I'm really excited to hear about research happening. Now, what kind of research would that be? Like, do they look more into, like, what kind of, what kind of research is conducted and how is that kind of research conducted? Yeah, so um, the research that we fund um, is really across many different areas of uh, suicide research. So there's biological research and looking at kind of biological factors, um, you know, brain structure and, and um, things we think of like biomarkers that may help us understand better who's at risk for suicide. Uh, but we also fund research that looks at treatments, um, that looks at, you know, kind of um, which treatments are showing to have promise in terms of uh, impacting suicide. We certainly look at um, areas that are more focused on things like interventions in hospitals or in um, mm -hmm. other settings where suicide, you know, who, those settings tend to see more people um, that pass through that may indicate suicide risk. Um, so the the research is pretty broad, but it's all really with the goal mm -hmm. of preventing suicide or helping people who have been impacted by suicide. So we also fund research around supporting, looking at things that help support those that have experienced the suicide loss. Mm -hmm. And is there is there like a prevalence that you found like is there a higher suicide rate in young or or people who are ill or are there has there been a lot yeah, of prevalence it, studies done? It's 
It's really, um, you know, the un- understanding the data, and I think that's another piece when I say we, we're learning more. We're also learning a lot more about who dies by suicide. And really prior to the last uh, decade, we really didn't have a systematic way of even knowing that, kind of who are we losing. Um, the data wasn't as complete. Uh, we didn't know much about the characteristics or the, the demographics. But what we know now is that, um, we the suicide risk is is prevalent in older adults um, and middle-aged men in particular. Um, those mm-hmm. kind of two periods in life are when people are at the highest risk. Um, so if you think about kind of okay. the older adults, we're really thinking like um, people who are facing challenges at end of life, um, age mm-hmm. 80, 85 and up, really that end of the spectrum but also kind of middle age and the the data on middle age um particularly middle aged men although women also die by suicide is one that it's we've seen the rate increasing in that group and that's something that we're certainly trying mm-hmm. to understand um but suicide does kind of hit across all age groups so we don't mm-hmm. you know our prevention messages are really going to the population broadly um because even though the suicide rate is lower for example in teenagers it's also the second leading cause of death for teenagers um so that's mm-hmm. something that we we pay attention to right that looking at um right. how these different risk groups kind of what we know about suicide within that group and and particularly like i said in teenagers because they tend not to pass from other causes it becomes one of the primary causes of death so we do spend a lot of time educating parents schools and others in communities on what to look for if someone if they believe someone may be struggling uh with suicide mhm mhm so this is a term I've never heard until I was reading your bio, and I actually froze on it a little bit. So can you tell us what mental health first aid is? Okay. So mental health first aid is a, is a program by one of our partner organizations. Um, it's the National Council for Behavioral Health is the organization that's uh, one of the creators of that program. And it's a day-long training that is hosted at various locations around the country. There's people who have been trained to deliver that around the country, including in our AFSP's chapter network. And it's a day-long training that really focuses on helping kind of the average person understands mental health, understand different, what it means to have different diagnoses, and and basically also just how to support mental health. Um, So, that training is available for people who are working with adults and have that concern and um, or those who there's also a version for people working with youth. Um, so it's kind of a general training around mental health. And we've um, worked with the National Council for Behavioral Health to deliver that program through our chapters. AFSP has chapters um, in all 50 states. And this is one of the programs that our chapters do deliver to help educate their communities about mental health and because I think an important piece to maybe connect for your listeners is that, you know, of people who die by suicide, that the vast majority of them are struggling with a mental health condition at the time of their death. Now it may be undiagnosed or, or, you know, it may be treated or, or not treated um, or under treated in some instances. But when we look back, um, 
and there's a type of research called psychological autopsy. But when we look back and we interview family and friends of people who have died by suicide, in the vast majority of cases, there is a mental health component present. So part of prevention is really about training people about mental health, training them to recognize kind of warning signs and understand suicide risk so that they can kind of help someone before that moment of crisis. Mm-hmm. And yeah, you know, it's, I was, I was listening to what you were saying about um, people with underlying mental, um, you know, that have a, a disease that may cause depression, anxiety, or more, um, um, Psych, even psychosis kind of problems, with which we do have in HD. But I also hear often that they talk about burden. Is this something you hear a mm-hmm. lot? They talk about they don't want to be a burden to their family. I hear this all the time yeah. in the HD community. Well, suicide is complicated, and it's you know there's no one risk factor that we can say explains why suicide occurs in one individual versus another, but. What you do hear, one of the the things that we talk about is kind of the perception of the person um, who's struggling. So one of the things you may hear mentioned in the suicide literature is this idea that of perceived burdensomeness. And, And that's really the notion that and it's perception, right? It may not be in actuality, mm-hmm. um, but there's a perception that, you know, people would be better off if I didn't exist, that my existence alone creates a burdensomeness for other people. Um, And Mm -hmm. that can be for all sorts of kind of, or the person who feels that can think that for all sorts of reasons, right? I mean, if it's a parent, for example, who's having that feeling, they may have this kind of sense that my children would be better off if I weren't their parent, right? They may have kind of, Mm -hmm. and it's a distortion. I think most of us, um, mm-hmm. That when mm-hmm. we talk to families afterwards, they they kind of feel like, well, you know, there may have been some challenges, but th- there certainly wasn't that feeling that we'd be better off without this person. But but it's right. through the lens of the person who's struggling, right? And so you can imagine mm-hmm. if someone is feeling depressed, if they have life stressors, whether they're health stressors, financial stressors, or, or other things going on, um, if they're using substances, for example, um, and they start mm-hmm. to have this feeling that, that people would be better off without them, it really kind of creates a sense of hopelessness, you know, about my, my own reason for living or my own purpose. Um, and we know that one of the things that helps keep people here when they're struggling is if they have reasons for living, if they have a sense of purpose, um, if they have a sense of even legacy. You know, when we talk about people, for example, who have struggled with terminal illnesses, you know, some of it, some of what helps them, I think, in terms of suicide risk is really having a sense of wanting to kind of make the most of the time they have or to leave a legacy of, of, of something behind. But when someone is in that dark place, it can be super hard to access that. And so that's one of the reasons we spend a lot of time in prevention, really encouraging open discussions about mental health and openly asking if you think someone is struggling, hey, you know, I'm wondering if, if you're feeling so badly that you've ever had thoughts of suicide. Because we know that talking mm-hmm. about it won't make it happen, but that there's a kind of a misperception that if we talk about it, somehow it's going to make a situation worse, and then nothing could be further from the truth. We really do need mm-hmm. that open dialogue. Um, and for the person that's struggling, sure. I think open dialogue sends them a message they're not alone, which is so important. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, and even like you know the the burden one that I just brought up and and um, I my husband he always would tell us that he thought he was going to be a burden to us and you know now just losing him a couple weeks ago I would tell him all the time you know you're you're not a burden we love you and now feeling him gone. I mean, he was never a burden. I'd do anything to bring him back, you know? So I think you're mm-hmm. right. It's 100% the perception of the person. It's definitely not the perception of the family because, you know, um, it's, it's, if you're gone, we would do pretty much anything to bring you back if we could bring you back, but, you know, um, uh, healthy and happy and all that. So I, I think that's really interesting. You talked about perception. And I think this legacy mm-hmm. thing is really, really important in purpose. That, that brings up a whole um, – so is that kind of stuff that they talk about in the mental first aid kind of program? Um, do, they, do they talk yeah, about well, a lot of that kind of stuff? Well, my understanding is the mental health first aid program is, is focused a little more on the specific kind of different mental health diagnoses that, that accompany mental health concerns. Okay. So learning more, for example, about depression or anxiety, that that's a little bit more of their mm-hmm. focus. Certainly a piece of that is suicide prevention. Um, But I think what Mm -hmm. you're speaking to is really something that we've learned from research that kind of this idea of reasons for living is so important to people when they're struggling with a sense of hopelessness and when they're feeling suicidal, Mm -hmm. that if they can access Mm -hmm. just even just some reasons to kind of help them through the crisis, that that that, that is super important. In addition to, you know, also having some tools. So one of the things we talk about in the safety in the suicide prevention world is safety planning. And really, in a nutshell, what safety planning is, is it's the kind of stop, drop, and roll for, for, you know, what to do if you're on fire. It's the same idea of when you're in a crisis, it's very hard to access tools, to call a friend, to so it, safety plans are really a, step, a step-by-step list of what you can do if you're struggling. And we encourage people mm-hmm. who, who are struggling with suicide to have a safety plan because it does help them in that moment. Because we know if they can get through that moment, that the crisis will pass, the intensity of it will pass. Um, but often when someone's struggling, it's very hard for them to access the things they would normally do if they weren't struggling or if they weren't in a moment of crisis, such as reach out to a mm-hmm. friend or to a, a crisis line. Or um, so, so we look to really give people those tools, but a big piece of that is also connecting to reasons for living, um, people, places, mm-hmm. kind of things that give you a sense of meaning and purpose in your life, regardless of, of what your present struggle is. Mm-hmm. So I, w- I just real quick, if we could talk about, um, like in the HD community, we've had several deaths to suicide. Um, and it's not just patients, it's, it's caregivers. So um, since we're talking about different strategies and things, what can we first talk about caregivers? Um, so caregivers that are feeling um, depression or suicidal ideation, do you have any, um, you gave us, just gave us some great suggestions, but do you have any more that for families if they're dealing with that mm-hmm. or a caregiver? What, yeah, one of the things I think we talk a lot about, whether you're caring for a person that has a mental health struggle or a physical um, illness like HD, I think one of the things we talk a lot about is the importance of the caregiver um, taking care of themselves. I mean, we, we use the word or the phrase self-care quite a bit, but it, it's really yeah. fundamental because I do think that and I, I, when I talk to even other mental health providers, this is something I say quite a bit, is that, 
you know, we as caregivers um, really are a sign of hope for the hopeless, right? We, we kind of serve mm-hmm. as a beacon in a way. And so if we're sure. in a place where we're personally feeling hopeless, right, or we're feeling that, you know, while it might seem counterintuitive to take time to, t- to care for ourselves or make, make some steps toward um, filling our own cups, so to speak, it really benefits everyone, including the person we're caring for um, in the long run. So what I hear often mm-hmm. is that caregivers, you know, are really giving every ounce of energy, time, and, and, and everything to support the person. And there's this sense of if I pull away to get more help or if I, you know, take a break for myself, that somehow something's not, you know, it's not going to work out. And what we know is that if people, people who are caregivers really need probably more than most of us to take care of their self, themselves in very deliberate and mindful ways um, because mm-hmm. it, it often then translates to, to how they're able to provide care. And for me, you know, thinking of caregivers also being at risk for suicide, I think just the uh, um, enormous stressor of being a caregiver, the unpredictability of it, um, mm-hmm. You know, just kind of the demands, the round-the-clock demands that that um, can be a, the case when you are a caregiver. I think all of those things kind of in a way are a, a bit of a setup for our own mental health to struggle. So it's even more important sure. if we notice, you know, as a caregiver, I'm feeling more sad or depressed or I seem to be in this place where I don't see any hope for the future, that we find some way to find someone to talk to about that, whether it's a mental health professional or, you know, a a supportive colleague or or someone that can help us kind of figure out what's the way to protect our own mental health in that situation. Mm -hmm. Do you think, and this is kind of an off question, but do you think like lack of sleep has any play of that? Because I know caregivers, they, a lot of in the HD community, they especially the one for the young JHD uh, caregivers, they get no sleep. They 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 don't sleep at all, and it worries me so much because I know when my husband was so sick, I wasn't sleeping. I started to not think the way I normally would. I wasn't yeah, able absolutely. to. Yeah. Well, we, you know, and sleep is something that when a person's sleep is interrupted or the patterns change of it, you know, we often um, look to that as a signal of of potential changes in mental health as well. So it's kind of both and, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Someone's sleep may be changing and it may be an indicator of of mental health concerns, but also if structurally, you know, just schedule-wise or demand-wise that they're getting less sleep, you know, when we're, when we don't sleep well, our our judgment changes, right? It's like our perception Mm -hmm. changes Mm -hmm. and the very tools we need to be able to access in tough moments are harder to get to if, if we haven't slept. Um, so there's, there's a, a emerging body of research that looks at the role of sleep in suicide risk. And I think what we're starting to learn mm-hmm. is that it has a very important role. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, I, I would imagine. I think it changes all the way we think completely when we don't sleep. Um, and I think we don't even realize sometimes when we get lack of sleep, and we like, you know, we finally get sleep, and we're like, wow, we haven't slept in two weeks. This is, I forgot mm-hmm. what sleep, real mm-hmm. good sleep feels like. Um, so what about like a patient living with Huntington's? You know, it's terminal. There's no treatment. There, I mean, there's just treatment for the mm-hmm. movement, but there's no therapies, no nothing that can help, you know, stop progression or slow down progression. So what about 
someone that's living with a terminal diagnosis like that. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I think it's a really important question. And I think, you know, one of the things that I think is often helpful to to think about is that, you know, we have many people in the world who face um, very difficult situations such as being diagnosed with, with a terminal illness or an unpredictable illness. Um, and they can serve as beacons in a way, I think. And so one of the things I, I even say in the mental health space is that what's often most helpful to the person who's struggling is to hear from somebody who has struggled alongside them and, and found a way to go on. That I think, you know, it, it, that message resonates differently if I can look to you and see a similar struggle and see some hope, right? That if somehow mm-hmm. you're navigating those daily challenges um, in a way that embraces both kind of the, the seriousness and, and um, the unpredictability of it, but also that, you know, I feel less alone in my own struggle to know that there's others out there who, who are who are struggling with me, but also finding ways to cope. Um, so I, we are really big about um, sharing sto- stories, positive stories of mental health. Mm-hmm. When people are really, you know, in everyone's circumstances may look a little bit different, but if I can look to you and know that you felt that way and see that you're navigating your way through it, that sends me an important message about my own possibilities. And so we really encourage Mm -hmm. kind of the sharing of stories and really the openness of that, like the openness to say, you know, I felt that way too, and here's what helped me. Mm -hmm. Those stories can be Mm -hmm. super powerful in terms of helping people navigate the challenges, just to know that other people have been there and that other people are currently there, I think can really send a message of support to someone currently struggling. Yeah, absolutely. And I love that you talk about the legacy thing because, you know, even like being involved in a clinical trial, knowing that you're, you know, helping with someone that's like Huntington's, you know, knowing you're, you're making a difference for future generations or writing a blog or, or sharing your story or helping another person and partnering up with another person. I love that. I think a lot of times in our community, uh, people think like, I, you know, I, I have Huntington's. What can I do now? I can't work. I can't, you know, drive. Mm-hmm. But there's so much you can do, and there's so much value um, in, in your journey that you can share with mm-hmm. others to help other people and the next generation. So I love that legacy yeah. uh, concept. For sure. In suicide, in, in suicide prevention, we use a term that's been used in other health concerns as well of lived experience and, and just the value that lived experience of, of any situation, whether it's Huntington's or mm-hmm. suicide or suicide loss, the lived experience of that and how that is both informative in a way that, you know, it, it can help others. Um, and really mm-hmm. kind of encouraging it within our own network to embrace the power of that lived experience. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I, we work a lot with families who have lost someone to suicide, and a lot of the, the, the question comes around, I think, the acknowledgement that I can't change. I can't change what is or what was. So they, their loved one may have died, and there may be this sense of there's nothing I can do about that, but what I can do is make a decision going forward about how I will use that experience. 
and whether it's to create a legacy or to to help someone who may not have gotten the help otherwise, whatever that is, I think that can be a really important beacon for folks who, you know, may not be able to change the outcome um, either of their loss or of their illness, whatever the situation is. I think it's this idea that I can use my lived experience, I can choose to use my lived experience in a way that has a greater meaning or purpose. I, I think people connecting mm-hmm. to that and that sense of legacy is so incredibly important. Um, I, mm-hmm. I will say really mm-hmm. quickly, we have chapters at AFSP in all 50 states. In fact, if folks were interested in our work, um, they could go to AFSP.org and um, look for a chapter near them. But one of the things we do a lot is we um, have what's called out-of-the-darkness walks. And those walks are really people with lived experience, people um, who have lost someone, people who are caregivers, all really joining together to make a difference. And, and they're, they're fundraisers for research and other programs. But I think that the mm-hmm. bigger impact of them is really the sign in a community that, hey, mm-hmm. people struggle yeah. and they find a way <laughs> and they look to each other for support. And it really just sends a really important message. And I know other health causes have similar things, but I, I do think it speaks to this idea of the shared experience. And really, the more we can break down stigma and, and the difficulties of talking about that, the better off we are collectively in addition to individually. Yeah, you know, it's so I'm so glad you said that because that was actually my next question is um, different programs and different ways our community can get um, in touch and involved with um, AFSP because not only do we have, you know, um, patients that may have suicide ideation and, and, and caregivers, but also I have so many friends in this community that have lost their loved one or their children um, or a sibling to suicide. Um, it's how it's, you know, um, our suicide rate is so high in Huntington. Um, there are that, there's that group of people that need support too. Um, and there's a lot of, uh, a lot of us out there that a lot of my friends out there that, that need that help. And I think that it's kind of a, a dual thing, right? They've lost their loved one to Huntington. Um, but they ha- they've also loved their love they've also lost their loved one to suicide and and they that brings some confusion to them when I've talked to them. Um, I, I wish I could have done this. I wish I could have done that. It's a lot of more a, a kind of a different type of survivor guilt that's even being brought on. Um, so how how can our community get involved um, with um, AFSP with the walks and and find out some of these different programs that could help support. Um, the community, our community that needs it? Yeah, well, it's a great question. And uh, like I said, our website is AFSP for the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention, AFSP.org. And on our webpage, you can find information um, about suicide, about our work, um, but also about where our chapters are around the country. We have a chapter in all 50 states and um, as far as Alaska. And so um, I do think that having um, connecting with a chapter who often does local programming in their community um, around suicide prevention, but also around supporting lost survivors. Uh, we have a, a program called Healing Conversation, which really is a what I think of as a peer-to-peer connection um, between someone who's requesting um, a, 
of connection or a contact and a person who's been trained who's also had an experience where they had a loved one die by suicide. So through that program, Healing Conversations, it's not uncommon for us to connect a volunteer who maybe lost a loved one to suicide with somebody in the community who really wants to talk to someone who's been there and, and get a sense of the resources and how to navigate that grief landscape. Um, the other thing I will mention um, is that we have an annual event um, called International Survivors of Suicide Loss Day. It's always the Saturday before Thanksgiving, and this year it's November 23rd. And on that day, people okay. who have lost someone to suicide do gather um, at community events to, um, to basically find support around their loss. So I think that's also something you can share with your network. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for coming on today. This was a uh, a really good show full of information. Um, we will be shooting it out. I will put the website, um, AFSP's website, on the show page for everyone to see. So um, when you're on there watching the show or listening to the show, even in the archives, that website will be available for you guys um, if you need it. Um, thank you so much, Um for coming on and, and doing this this very important show with us today, I am getting ready to uh, to go offline here, and uh, I want to wrap up the show with one announcement. Um, it's our biggest announcement of the year. It's our annual event coming up on October 12th. I cannot believe we're 10 days away. Uh, this year, Help for HD International Symposium is held in Las Vegas. Um, we, as always, this is a completely free event for all um, HD families. We have. Um, we're going to be talking about IVF PDG. HDO will be there running a youth camp. Um, we have HD um, Gem there. Genentech uh, Pharmaceuticals will be there talking about their research. Sage uh, Therapeutics will be there talking about their research. Teva Pharmaceuticals. Jimmy Pollard will be there doing inspiration talks. Of course, we have Dr. Jan Nolta talking about stem cell from UC Davis. Um, our keynote this year is Dr. Tom Bird talking about his amazing book, How Can You Help Me? Um, he'll be there talking, and his 45 years of being an experienced neurologist in HD is going to bring a lot of information and education to our event this year. Um, we also have Wave Pharmaceuticals coming and talking about their clinical trial. And, of course, as always, we will be talking about research and social work, care, um, and uh, we also have a swallowing and speech pathologist coming this year. Um, so thank you for this event to Unicure Genentech, Wave, and Sage, and most of all, our premier sponsor, Tava Pharmaceuticals, for always supporting us with these um, these edu these very important education events for our community. Um, it's at the Palace Station. You guys, registration is still open. Um, come join us. It's free. We have free receptions. Um, there's free breakfast and lunch. The receptions, we're serving food, and there's going to be live entertainment. It's going to be a lot of fun for us to come together as a community and always support each other and have a good time with each other. So, um, you guys tune in next week, next Wednesday, same time, same place. Um, until then, everyone have a safe week. Thank you. <laughs>